Father, we thank you for uh, your presence that is here with us today. That's what we're going to be talking about, that you are here. Um, it's not just an idea that we try to prove, but it's a reality we are seeking to live into. So I do pray that you would help us today to participate in that, to perceive uh, what it is that you're doing, um, how you are present among us. Uh, as we listen to uh, one another, as we listen to Scripture, I pray that uh, these things would be revealed to us in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, folks. Well, just to review, where we've been so far is uh, that we're, we're talking about this series, Living a Sacramental Life. We're going to talk a lot more about what that means, what sacraments are, and what uh, a sacramental life would mean today. Uh, but last week, Matt uh, introduced uh, our first axiom. We kind of packaged the truths of what it means to live a sacramental life into these little uh, phrases that are hopefully easy to remember. Um, we're calling them axioms that are just these assumptions that we have about reality because this seems to be the way that Jesus saw reality and uh, seems to be the way that he lived his life. So the first one, does anybody want to tell me what the one, I, I erased it so you guys couldn't cheat, but uh, what, what was last week's axiom? Ella? The goal of the Christian life is love. That's right. The goal of the Christian life is love. And even more specifically, Love in, the, the way that we get into love is by becoming one with God and one with one another. So communion is a huge word there. Communion isn't just a fancy word that refers to that activity we do at the altar uh, every Sunday. Communion actually refers to what that activity at the altar opens us up into, which is actual uh, communing with another person. Person-to-person -person communal contact is uh, the goal of the Christian life. And God invites us into that. That's what was broken at the fall, and that's what we're invited back into uh, in Christ because of the incarnation. Yes, good. Any other, uh, any other comments about that? Just to review real quick before we dive into today's axiom. Comments or questions about the goal? Yeah, Kate. A lot of the love that, uh, that was referred to is love of others. Yes. Good. Yes. Right, so the love, the love isn't just me and God, Jesus is my boyfriend kind of love, right? Uh, and the love isn't just love of neighbor, but it's, it's all of it, all together. Um, and there's, there's all kinds of New Testament passages. First John, I think, talks about this explicitly, where he says, look, if, you, like, if, you, if you're not loving your neighbor, how can you say you love God? You actually don't love God uh, as much as you claim to, because if you're filled with love, it just spills out and you are able to love your neighbor. So what he's saying there is like, if you are having difficulty loving your neighbor, it's just an indication to you that you're not at home at love. You're not at home in love yet. Yeah. So it all, it, it's all together. Love of neighbor, love of God. It's one thing. Good. Anything else? Just comments, something that you thought, oh, that was really interesting or helpful for me or a question maybe about last week. The, two, the grace and truth matrix? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about it today. That's why I've left it up there. Um, these tools for us function, uh, they're not just like content. It's not just like, oh, memorize this and there you go. But it's, it's actually, a, it's meant to function as a lens, something through which we see uh, that enables us. So for me, the grace and truth matrix enables me to sort of see my relationships in a new light. You're like, oh, I, want, I wonder if this is how I'm stuck here in call out with my kids. I just, all I do is tell them what to do, you know? And so it gives me a lens to be able to kind of see, oh, this is maybe some, uh, an area of growth for me. 
So yeah, and we'll t so we'll talk more about that, and that is meant to function as a uh, as a lens. Uh, it's meant to function as something in which we live our lives. So, and we learn more about more when we do our training uh, through gravity. We actually spend like four weeks on this tool, and then we keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it. So, if it feels a little abstract or you weren't quite sure you got it, like don't worry about it. Um, it it does take a little while to learn to use it as a lens. So, good. All right. Well, let's dive into uh, today's axiom. Uh, just a couple quotes, uh, and then I'm going to have, same as last time, have you guys uh, look up a couple scripture passages uh, for us to investigate later. St. Teresa of Avila said this, All difficulties in prayer can be traced to one cause, praying as if God were absent. Have you ever prayed as if God were absent? God, please come down. God, please do something. Yeah. We're praying as if he's absent. And St. Teresa of Avila says, all difficulties in prayer can be traced to that one cause. C.S. Lewis uh, said this, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere, incognito. So if last week was about divine union, it was about communion, about uh, communion with God and with others, this is the reality of our world. Creation, uh, and that's what dis that's what was disrupted in the fall, and what's restored in the incarnation. Uh, the f in the flesh of humanity, then the truth is that we are united, we are connected with God, and so the next axiom is kind of plays on that. These you'll you'll notice these things kind of build on each other. They're not like discrete truths that have nothing to do with each other, but they sort of build on each other and they're aspects of each other. So our next axiom is basically this: the simple affirmation that. In every circumstance of our lives, in every situation we find ourselves in, God is, oh man, this whiteboard marker, two things. God is present and at work. God is present and at work. That may be it for the whiteboard marker, we'll see. Unless somebody has one in their purse. Nobody carries around? No. <laughs> All right. So this is our axiom. God's, God is always present and at work. Okay? It seems pretty simple. Maybe it sounds a little first grade to you. Um, but God is always present and at work is our second axiom. God's presence isn't something we achieve. God's presence isn't uh, something that we attain. He's already closer to us than we realize. God is not far away. God is not a long time from now. God is not up in heaven. We'll talk about that in here just a second. God's here. Now, in every circumstance, in every moment. Now, does that feel obvious? Or does it feel challenging? Does it feel like, wait, is that right? It feels like it should be obvious, but I don't feel like I've my life that way. That's good. Right. It's like I get it in my head, but not in here. Right. Yeah, I get it in your head, but not in your heart. It <laughs> should feel... Yeah, go ahead. Um, so much of our language is God, we, like, yeah, I think we say sanctify. Yeah. So, uh, yes, some of our language can be construed, right, at, it, yeah. in, this, in this way. Um, I would end up, I would, I would probably contend that if we really believe God is present and at work, there's usually another way to read those prayers, right? Mm -hmm. So if God, if the Holy Spirit is here, we are asking the Holy Spirit to do something specific here with this bread, which is to sanctify it, right. which is to set it apart for a holy use, right? right? It's not just normal bread anymore. It's 
it's to be used now for communion, uh, which is why we bury the crumbs afterwards. We don't just throw it in the trash, right? Or we consume it. So, yeah, good, good. So some of our language can betray the way that we're thinking about this. Yeah, anybody else? Yeah, I, think, uh, yeah. I hear a lot of people either writing on Facebook or even saying, like in leading worship at churches, God really just will show up today. Yes. Or they'll say, God really showed up today. God really so showed up. Like that, which, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. Have you guys ever said that? I, I've said that. Right? I, I used to lead worship a lot. And uh, God show up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Well, even the language of come Holy Spirit, right, could be construed as, oh, he's not here. We're inviting him to come. Or inside of a world where God is always present and at work, perhaps it's less of that and more of an invitation uh, for the Holy Spirit. To, it's more of a surrender on our part. Right? To say, we welcome you here. We know you're present. Yeah, but we welcome you here. Good. Yeah, Jeff. You know, I think especially with the prayers of liturgy and prayer books, I look at those as more of a, a way or a language to get everybody on the same page. Yes. And to come to a common place, not that it's an invitation or something's changed, but it's a place to get a common format. Good. Yes, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, and we could get into that. I'm kind of a liturgy nerd, so um, I, I'm fully with you on that. That there's, there, there is a sense in which a lot of us grew up kind of in more of low church, evangelical kind of environments. Um, and for us, prayer seems a little bit more like it's, it's most authentic when it just kind of, uh, you know, bubbles out of my heart and out of my mouth, right? Like whatever comes to my mind, I pray. Uh, and that's the most authentic prayer. And so some of us have difficulty with liturgical language, but that's exactly what it's meant to do, is to sort of pull us all into a world in which we may not be living, right? Um, and so if, if all my prayer is just whatever I happen to be thinking about, I'm not being formed in prayer. I'm just sort of baptizing my own preconceived notions and asking God to sort of bless me right here. Whereas liturgical language in prayer kind of takes us somewhere, right? And sometimes, especially if it feels foreign, it's actually a, it's a good, we'll talk about what this word means, but it's a good kairos for us. It's a good like, realization of like, oh, I wonder why this feels foreign to me, or this feels weird to pray this way. So it's good. Okay, let's have, let's have you guys, I'm going to have you look up a couple scriptures again, like last time. Who's, who's got a Bible and wants to look something up? Katie. Katie, can you look up uh, Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22? It's a long story. Get ready. Gird yourself. All right. Acts. Uh, who, want, who wants the next one? Genesis 10. Uh, Isaiah. Acts 9, 1 through 5. Joel. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Okay? So you got the shortest one. Katie, you got the longest one. That's a privilege. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right, so while you guys are looking those up, uh, uh, while you guys are looking that up, I, I want to introduce a metaphor that has been really helpful for me uh, that I hope will be really helpful for us in terms of thinking about how, how it is that God is always present at work. So um, the faith that many of us grew up in had to do with what? What was the gospel? Does anybody want to give me like a caricatured version of the evangelical gospel? Isaiah. Romans Road. Romans Road, which is, which is what? If you could condense it. So that what? So uh, you don't have to die. You don't have to die. You can go to <laughs> heaven. You get to go to heaven when you die, right? Rather than hell. So the gospel basically had to do with uh, when you die, you're going to go to heaven or hell. Which one do you want? Yeah. 
right? Which is, you know, kind of a loaded question, right? <laughs> Hell, you know. Uh, so which one do you want? And then if you want heaven, ah, here's the thing. You're a sinner. You can't go to heaven. What are you going to do about it? Oh, here's the other thing. Good thing Jesus died for you and absorbed this, you know, this, this thing. And so, so now you can go to heaven when you die, right? So a lot of us grew up with that. Now, I know that's a little bit of a caricature, but honestly, that is how most people that grew up in that, that's how they interpret it, is I have this abstract situation that I, I had no idea, right? It's this abstract, like, it's sort of like, it's sort of like if you were speeding through an area where you didn't know what the speed limit was, so you sort of accidentally, like, broke the law. But, like, that's an abstraction, isn't it? Like, oh, you broke the law, technically. I mean, I technically broke the law coming here. I was going, like, five miles over on Binford, right? So, but that's an abstract, right? That's an abstraction that I broke the law. It's not an abstraction uh, that Ellie is sick today, right? That's, that's an existential, wow, her fever, they can't be here today. The, the Curtises can't be here today because Ellie is so sick and has such a high fever. That's an existential reality that you can't avoid, right? I, I, don't, I don't even think about, the only time I might think about breaking the speed limit is if a cop car pulls me over and then I'm like, oh shoot, now I have to pay this penalty, right? But it's more of an existential thing when someone's sick. I wanna, I wanna say, we can talk about this more later, but I wanna say that ultimately that, it's more like, what's wrong with us is more that we're sick then we broke some abstract law. That's actually what's wrong with us. The whole witness of the early church was that the problem is death. The problem is that we've disconnected ourselves from the source of life, and now we're slowly dying. What's going to happen to us? Well, God rescues us, right? He becomes one of us, and he, and he takes all that. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. But basically, the idea behind that gospel is you say a prayer, and then you're saved if you say the prayer, and then you have to also have the right ideas about God, right? You have to, like, assent to the correct facts about God. And that's what sort of punches your ticket for heaven, right? Which, when you put it that way, it sounds, it sounds silly, right? It's like, really? This is the universe we live in? Where, like, I have to, I have to jump through these hoops and, like, think correctly about God, and that's what saves me? That's a little bit silly, right? Um, <laughs> Siri's chiming in, yes. So it seems a little bit silly, and here's the other problem with it. I took care of that in second grade. I don't know when you guys sort of prayer, but I took care of that in second grade. Now what? Like now what do I do? I've taken care of the most important thing in my life in second grade? I just twiddle my thumbs and make sure I still believe the right things about God? Why go to church? You know, like, why do anything? Yeah, Joel, and then go to Bruce. Well, now, now I get other people to say that prayer. <laughs> ah, there you go. Right, now I get other people to say the prayer. Good, all right, yeah. Well, that's, maybe, yeah. <laughs> Bruce. <laughs> um, I thought you had to behave correctly, too. Oh, yeah, you do. That's correct. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's good. Which was always a... Good. So you have to, you're saved by grace, except asterisk, don't misbehave too much. You know what I mean? Only in these aspects of life, don't misbehave. Yes, that's the other thing, right? Don't misbehave sexually, don't misbehave. Right. Don't swear. Don't swear. Don't, don't, don't dance, probably avoid dancing. Right. But like other aspects of life, like 
Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So it's it's all individual sin, right? And it all it all has to do with that. So anyway, we I could I apologize. I could rant about that for a while. <laughs> but uh, here's what I want to say about it. The problem with this account of the gospel, which is not the gospel, by the way, the problem with this account of the gospel is that it assumes secularism. Okay? Now, secularism has kind of been a boogeyman for a little while in the church. But I want to say that uh, secularism is our default position because of we've grown up in the Western world for the last 500 years. This has been the default position. And this, we, we think in these terms almost automatically. Even as Christians, we think as secularists most of the time. Okay? Andy? What is secularism? Thank you uh, for that. I'll give you a quarter for that because I'm about to define it. Yes, yes. So secularism is not atheism. Okay? So atheism is just the assertion that God does not exist. Secularism is a little bit more sneaky because secularism says God exists, we think, uh, but he doesn't exist here. He's somewhere else. We've consigned him to, and here's, here's the metaphor. If we're living on the first floor of a building, we, like secularism says, yes, there is a God, but he lives on the second floor. And there's no stairs to get up there. It's just, it's up, just believe me, it's up there. He's up there. God's up there somewhere. But he doesn't really have much to do with our everyday ordinary lives. He's up there and he's waiting for us, right? And he sent Jesus and he took care of our problem, which is nice, thank you. And maybe every once in a while he sort of zaps, he sends a messenger through the floorboards and zaps us, or we hear some creaking going on up there and we're like, whoa, God's real! <laughs> right? There's a whole book industry that, that preys on this, right? Like, oh, this person had this dream, you know, when they almost died, and that proves it! God's real, right? There's like, in, there's, right? Aren't there movies? God is not dead. Three. I think there's a third movie, right? Or it's like, we're so desperate to prove the existence of a second story. Does that make sense? So we live, so secularism assumes we live on the first floor and God's not here. It's, it's basically up to us. It's like, get a job and behave yourself, you know, because God does see. So behave yourself, get a job. But it's mostly up to you to kind of handle your life and figure this out. And hopefully, someday, you'll go to the second floor when you die. And God's up there somewhere. Carlo. This seems like such perfect nationalized religion for the United States, especially, but in yeah. the Western world in general. Mm -hmm. We pretend to be um, more inclusive. Yeah. So it's like, well, I see that you're an Anglican priest, you're wearing a collar. Um, don't get like in my face about it, right? Because like God's on the second floor, and honestly, do we really know what He's right? We don't really know what He's up to. It's so, fine for you to have some personal beliefs about that, right. right? But it doesn't, should not really affect the way that we run the world, right? And you're right. That was actually the strategy. The strategy was we're going to rid the world of God by saying, "Hey, look, it's not that He doesn't exist, but it's that He's not really involved with our lives." Okay, so. I, I want to say that that is the world that we live in. Like, we almost automatically think in these terms because we've been indoctrinated into secularism. Does that make sense? So for the most part, we live in a non-religious world. Some people are religious, right? They wear collars or they go to church, and that's fine. And they've got some beliefs about the second story. And, you know, they sometimes fight about those beliefs about the second story. But it doesn't really have anything to do with us doesn't really have anything to do with our everyday ordinary life. Bruce. Yeah, I think that's a good 
Um, I think if you look at most of Western culture, uh, they, they don't live in a sister house anymore. Right. I, I mean, when you go to Europe, there's no church, right? Mm-hmm. So, and if you look at the Anglican Communion, yeah. 78% of our believing baptized congregants live in the Southern Yes, yes. No, it's not the Western world. Right, yeah, yeah. So it started this way, right? And, and here's what I want to say the mistake is. It started this way by saying God's on the second floor. We're on the first floor. God's not really involved in our lives. And now, basically, people have abandoned. They're like, you know what? The second floor doesn't exist. So God doesn't exist, right? And we just live on this. We just make him do, you know? If you want to have some beliefs about a God who might exist, you know, maybe that's helpful for you. But it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't really matter for our everyday, ordinary lives. So, um, I think the mistake that we made as, as, the, as the church is when the world was pushing towards secularism, we, tried to, we basically adopted those assumptions and then said, okay, we're going to prove that the second story exists. We're going to prove to you that the second floor is real. When what we should have done is said, that's nonsense. God's right here. Right? That's nonsense. God's right here. And a lot of the Eastern churches maintain this. They've got their own problems. But one of the things that they don't have is a Western Enlightenment point of view. Right? So they have, they have, in their liturgy and in their prayers, they have maintained this assumption that God is here. That God is present and is at work. Okay? So the church assumed secularism and tried to prove the existence of the second floor. But secularism itself is the lie. And I think the church ought to have done what the East did, which is just to say, no, God's right here. Now we're going to talk about how we, how we experience that and how we encounter that here in a second. But... We're going to get to our scriptures here uh, briefly. See what time it is. Okay. Katie, this is Genesis 10, uh, 28, 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring, and to your offspring shall, and your and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed, in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, and set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, but the name of the city was was. At the, at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me 
and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all of that you give, and all that you give me, I will surely give one tenth to you. Thank you for that uh, lengthy reading. And uh, apologize for making, making you read all of it. But the, the story is important. Could you guys hear that? What, what did you notice about that story? Just what, what struck you? He made a bargain. He made a bargain. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? What else? I love the phrase, God is in this place. God is in this place, and I didn't know it. I didn't know it, right? God, is in the, God was in this place, and I didn't know it. Yeah? That's an important phrase. I think a lot of times, if we imagine that God's on the second story, we imagine that what we're doing when we're praying is trying to get him to do something. Come down, show yourself, break through the floorboards, you know, or at least like give us a little thump to know that you're there. Right? We, we try to think that we're doing that, but what actually is happening is much what's happening with Jacob when we, when we gather for worship. Our eyes are being opened to what's actually real, what's actually been true this whole time, but we just weren't aware of it. Does that make sense? Yes, Isaiah. Isn't the story the story of Jacob's ladder also like used a lot to reinforce the, the sort of like second story thing? Because like Good. literally there's a ladder. Literally there's a ladder, right? <laughs> right, right. It seems like it's, uh, it's going up. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. Yeah, but notice what Jacob says. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, surely this is a place where there's a ladder that goes to where God is. He says God is in this place. So Jacob's assumption about what the metaphor means, what the imagery means of his dream, Jacob's assumption is the assumption of somebody who lives a more sacramental life, which is, oh, this is a portal into another reality that isn't a long ways away or, or somewhere else inside of this space-time universe, but right here. And this is a picture that gives me access to the reality that God is in this place. And he literally names it Bethel, right? Which means house of God. What else do you notice about this? There's one more aspect I want to highlight. God says he's going to be here Yes. Yeah, yeah. So God, God, God isn't just present. Right. He's, he's working, right? He's like, hey, Jacob, I'm, I'm coming to you to encourage you. I'm going to fulfill all the promises that I've made to you. Even though you stole the birthright. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy story. He's running for his life, right? Because he's been a despicable meanie, right? Kids, technical term. He's, he's, been, he's, been a, he's been a bad boy, right? He cheated his brother out of the inheritance, and he's running for his life because his brother's going to kill him. This is a dysfunctional family, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's a very dysfunctional family. And God meets him in the midst of that. Yeah. That's an important thing. The other thing I want to highlight, just in the interest of time, I want to make sure we have enough time to, because uh, we have to talk about, God is always present in the Word, we have to talk about how that relates to the sacramental and how secularism is different from sacramental. Okay? So just put a pin in that. And here's, uh, here's an aspect of that. Do you notice that Jacob assumes that the thing to do is not just think, oh, what a cool dream. God must be with me. What does he do? He takes the stone that his head was laying on and he sets it up and he pours oil on it. And then he says, this will be the house of God. This is the house of God. The rock, the stone, is the house of God. Isn't that interesting? 
It's not an idea that he has about God, but he actually anoints a physical rock and says, this is the house of God. From now on, I'm renaming this city. This is the house of God. It used to be called Luz, but actually what's more real about this place is that it's Bethel. It's the house of God. That's what, by the way, that's what naming is, especially in the Old Testament, the Hebrew thought. Naming something is not just like, oh, here's an interesting placeholder so I know who I'm referring to. Naming something is revealing what it truly is. And so that's why, that's why Jacob does this. He sets up a rock, a physical creation, and then he out loud names the place and says, this isn't loose. This is Bethel. God lives here. Isn't that interesting? That's the instinct of a sacramental person, is to anoint things and experience God through things. We'll talk more about that in a second. Okay? All right. Next passage. Is that you, Isaiah? Acts 9, 1 through 5. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly the light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuted? He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. <laughs> Sorry, cuts off in the middle of the sentence. Yeah, that's the important part. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What do you notice? And then you probably know the rest of the story, right? So Jesus speaks to him and says, uh, get up. <laughs> I love the first thing is like, get up. You know, I've got work for you to do. He's like, I don't even know who you are. I'm, you know, just go to the city. I'll, it'll take, I'll take care of it. So what do you guys notice about this, this story? What strikes you? about Paul's conversion here, Saul's conversion. Anything? Nothing in particular? Here's what strikes me and what I want to highlight. Um, Notice that Jesus doesn't say, so what is Saul doing? Saul is gathering up people who are followers of the way, right? The early church. He's gathering them up. He's persecuting them. He's throwing them into prison, uh, and he oversees the the martyrdom of uh, Stephen, Right? So there's like even killing them. So he's harming God's people, the church. And notice what Jesus says. Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No. Why are you persecuting me? He says, well, who are you? He says, I am Jesus and you're persecuting my followers. No. What does he say? You're persecuting me. You guys ever wondered about that? Why does Jesus say you're persecuting me? What's that? Yeah, Christians are the body of Christ. Now, I used to think of that as kind of a nice metaphor that was like, oh, be nice to each other and be a community. (coughs) But actually, what's going on is that through the incarnation now, we are actually organically, as the church, organically connected to Jesus in his flesh. And so Jesus can say to Saul, you are persecuting me. So there's such a strong connection that Jesus has with us, his church, that when we are hurting, he is hurting. When we are being persecuted, he is being persecuted. Now, in a two-floor universe, that's like nice language that means that Jesus cares about us. But in a one-floor universe, 
where God is just here and just present, it means a lot more. Don't you think? It means we really are organically connected to Christ every single moment of our lives. Yes? Um, I'm not sure what I mean by organically. It seemed like a really good word to use. So that's what I mean by it. Yes. So what I mean by organically is, yes, is that the physical world, and here we're getting into what I mean by sacramental, okay? The physical world is the means by which God communicates his presence to us. Okay? We'll just let that sink in. For just a second. Eliza's having a rough time. Yes. So, in a sacrament, in a one-story world, in a one-floor universe, God communicates his presence to us sacramentally, which means that the physical world is the means by which God communicates his presence. So, what we think of as miracles are not interruptions of how the world normally works. They're a revelation of the way that the world is. Yeah. Have you, have you ever wondered about, like, isn't it, this is an Old Testament story where, like, somebody falls on the bones of Elijah and they get, like, raised from the dead? Yeah. You ever wonder about that? It's kind of weird, right? Or, like, handkerchiefs that Paul has, like, had in his pocket, like, wiped his sweat with. He's like, I can't go pray for you. I'm too busy at work. Uh, but take this handkerchief. And then they do, and then the people are healed yeah. through the handkerchief. Uh, yes, maybe. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know you're, Isaiah, you're great at being the devil's advocate. And I don't mind. And I, and I don't mind it at all. That's fine. That's fine. But all that to say, those stories inside of a sacramental world make perfect sense, right? Even in the East, right, they, they, they have icons. They venerate icons regularly. Why? They actually believe they are, they are windows to heaven, which isn't up there, but like right here. It's a way for us to see what's really real about the world right now. Relics are the same kind of thing. I know that might be a little controversial, but relics are the same kind of thing where people, people believe that this object is holy in a sense, and somehow it communicates God's presence to us, right? Which shouldn't be controversial because this is exactly what we believe about the Eucharist. We believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And what, what sacraments are supposed to do is not contain God inside of God only shows up on that altar once a week on Sundays. They're not meant to contain God, but they're meant to reveal that the whole world is a sacrament. The whole, the, we could be sleeping on a rock running from our brother, and God's in this place. We could be running around trying to persecute Christians and realize, oh, I'm actually persecuting Jesus. I'm touching Jesus. I'm seeing Jesus when I see a Christian. Does that make sense? I'm going a little bit off script here, so I'm hoping it makes sense. He had, and so that's what I mean by organic, is it's like, it's real. It's not a metaphor. It's not an idea. When we, when we rid the world of sacraments, we rid the world of God. Because all we've got left, if we get rid of a sacramental imagination, that God actually communicates his presence to us through bread and wine. These concrete, everyday things. If we get rid of that idea, all we've got are, all we've got are ideas. That's all that's left. Ideas about the second floor that we can argue about and try to prove. 
But at the end of the day, it's just an idea. But if you live in a one-floor universe where God communicates himself to us, well then, you know, how do you, how do you, communi- how do you commune with God? Well, you just live your life. You just come to the altar. You eat the bread. You drink the wine. Does that make sense? It's very concrete. It becomes very concrete in the sacramental world. I'm jumping around a little bit, so ask some questions. Yes, Carlo. I don't want to get us off point too much, but this like, this feels very in contradiction with like the platonic or neoplatonic idea of the universe. Yeah. And yet, that's been used like, I think what CS Lewis, huge Platonist, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, lots of Christian fathers, they just sort of assume the platonic reality of the universe. And granted, it could just be me as a 21st century person being taught a secularized world. Yeah. But I have a hard time seeing the idea of Plato's ideals not being a second floor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I mean, we can't, we don't have time to get into it. But um, I, my hunch is that the way that we read Plato Mm -hmm. is through the lens of the Western Enlightenment. Okay, which which means secularism, like uh, so. The way that we the way that we read Plato now would be as secularists, and so we assume that that's what that means. Does that make sense? So good. Any other thoughts, questions about what I'm talking about here? With what, what, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a sacramental life? Yeah. Mm. are in the rocks and the trees. And yeah. In other words, God, the gods are everywhere. Yeah. Um, and that the, the same place for an evangelical view of the world is this sacred secular. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, and I think that's right. So I hear, what I hear you saying, Nancy, is that, um, again, we've it's really hard to resist these cultural forces, right? And so the Enlightenment told us this is, what, how, this is how the world is, that there's two stories to the universe. And so I think that what most people of faith did was that, was to say, okay, uh, I think we can live with that, right? And we tried to live with it. We tried to read, read scripture in that way. We tried to set up our lives, you know, to kind of say, to, say, uh, to assume secularism, but just to say, well, we believe in a second, yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's, that explains some of it. So what I, what I let, me, let me say a couple more things about it, and then we, we can see what, what questions you guys have. So, um, so the reason we want to talk about what it means to live a sacramental life is the secular age says that God's not really involved. We're saying, no, he is. He's always present and at work. But how do we know that he's always present and at work, right? How does that not become just an idea, another idea about God? that we affirm and assent to and say to each other, well, God's always present at work, right? How does that become that? Well, it becomes, it becomes more than that when it becomes sacramental, when it becomes sacramental. So we don't look for a, a cool feeling to come upon us. This is how I used to think I knew God was at work, right? They have some goosebumps. Anybody grow up in a charismatic church? That's how you know, right? You get some goosebumps. That's how you know God's at work. Uh, or, you know, maybe you become more certain of it intellectually. Anybody grow up in a church where that was kind of, that's how I know God's at work is, I'm sure about this now, yeah. right? I don't have any more doubts. Yes, yes. 
here's another charismatic one. We're sure that God's present at work if we see a miracle. Man, if I could just see somebody get healed, like, miraculously, then I would know that God's present and at work. Or, like, if I could just get knocked over by the Holy Spirit. Do you guys know this was a thing for a while? Still is, probably. Um, um, but no, that, those aren't the, the, we know it's sacramentally. And so um, this is what we mean by living a sacramental life. Sacraments are to wake us up to the fact that we live in a one-floor world. We live in an enchanted world, is another way to say it. This is partly why I think sci-fi and fantasy are so popular, is because, amen, Carlo, right? Sci-fi and fantasy are popular because we've tried so hard to rid the world of God, but I think everybody has this instinct that it's like, we didn't get rid of anybody. He's still here. He's haunting us. He's around every corner, right? And fantasy stories help us access that, right? Where it's like, oh, wow, this was true about the world the whole time, and we didn't know it. Yeah? I'm just, I, know, I want to keep talking, so you keep uh, yeah. celebrating. Yeah. That's a sermon for me. <laughs> yes. 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 Right? So like Lord of the Rings, Harry yes. Potter, yes. They, they, all, they all talk about how there's more to this world than what we see with our eyes or what we can verify empirically with our science. Yeah? Yeah. And I think the reason it's attractive is because it's true. <laughs> it's true. God really is here. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, you ever heard this poem? Earth's crammed with heaven. Earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck back blackberries. Yeah? So every bush is on fire. Everything is burning with the glory of the Lord, as we'll sing today, Joel, right? Um, so sacramental theology says we know that God is present in creation and working through creation through the sacraments. God doesn't work despite creation. He works through creation. Um, and so one way to think about this, using Harry Potter. So uh, how many of you guys have read Harry Potter? Okay. How many of you guys know what a horcrux is? Okay. So let me explain for those of you who don't know what a horcrux is. A horcrux is uh, a object. Let me see if I have this right. My, I need my Harry Potter experts to help me. Here. A horcrux is an object, and Voldemort, the bad guy in, in, uh, in Harry Potter, he uh, splits his soul and puts part of his soul in objects because he's trying to live forever, right? So if you kill his body, he can still sort of find his way back into existence through another body because he's got his soul hidden in these objects that are all over the place, okay? Now, that's an evil kind of uh, use of uh, what I'm talking about here, but you could think of sacraments in a similar way, okay? So think about this. If, if you see, if you're driving, I'm, hang with me, guys. Hang with me. Hang with me. If you're driving and you see a sign that says, that has a picture of a deer on it, silhouette of a deer, like what does that sign mean? Deer, there's deer around here, right? They might be crossing the road, be careful, right? So if I'm driving in my car and I hit the sign, have I killed a deer? No, right? That's just a, that's just a symbol that tells us that, that a deer, that deer around, right? A sacra, like what, if that sign was a sacrament, I would have killed a deer by hitting the sign. Does that make sense? So a sacrament, what we're talking about when we're talking about a sacrament is kind of like a horcrux, 
where the, what the children are doing in Harry Potter is destroying these objects. And as they destroy the objects, Voldemort, part of Voldemort's soul, gets killed as well. So Voldemort is connected to the object in an organic way, right? His life is in it somehow. Just like what a weird world it would be if I hit a sign that had a picture of a deer on it and I actually killed a deer, right? Well, how would that be? Well, that would be if the deer's life was somehow invested in the sign, right? The technical term is co-inhere, that things co-inhere with each other. What we're talking about with the sacramental worldview, this might be, I don't know if this is controversial for you or not, what we're talking about with the sacramental worldview is that the presence of God co-inheres in a unique way with the bread and with the wine. And what that's meant to do is show us that the entire world is actually a sacrament. Does that make sense? So everything is holy. Creation is holy. You're holy. That's why we honor one another, right? Because there's a holiness about the physical world and about one another. That we want to treat one another with that reverence. So how do we experience then this fact, right? That God is always present and at work. How does his presence come to us? It comes to us sacramentally. Through the everyday, ordinary, concrete moments of our lives. Including coming forward and receiving bread and wine. That's maybe a preeminent place because Christ has promised to be present there. But it also then should, should again, that's not, that's not us like caging the presence of God at the altar. That's actually like every time we do that, the sacrament like threatens to overthrow the whole world. We do our best to keep God in the box, right? But actually what's happening is the sacrament is overwhelming the world. And we start to see everything's a sacrament. You're a sacrament. I'm a sacrament. We treat one another with reverence. So all that to say, and here's, here's kind of the crux. What time is it? We've got we to gotta move on. Here's kind of the crux. Everybody else who has a scripture, I'm sorry. Well, I guess it's just you, Joel. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Joel's fine. No big deal. <laughs> um, so... I know this, is, this could be a lot to, for a lot of people to take in, okay? So here's some practical handlebars for how we live into this, okay? This is a lot of what you're doing in your DNA groups. A lot of what you're doing in your DNA groups is not just discussing what you think about the teaching, but you're sharing, and I'll talk about this in just a second, but you're sharing concrete moments of your life that you need to discern how God is present and at work with him. Because that's the assumption. God's present and he's working in your life around you all the time. And the task of discipleship is learning to pay attention to what's actually been real f for you the whole time. So just learning to pay attention to it. Okay? So, uh, a couple implications. Nancy, you said, we say that God showed up. I have tried to strike that phrase from my vocabulary. Okay? Because again, it indicates that God, that, that a, a new situation has come into the world where God is here. Well, no, that's not it. So God doesn't show up, we wake up. Like Jacob, who ironically woke up while he was asleep, right? Um, does that make sense? God doesn't show up, we wake up. That's one implication, practical thing. Uh, another practical implication, just because it feels like God is absent does not mean it's true. I think we spend a lot of our time trying to 
organize circumstances so that they fit the story that we have in our heads about what would be happening if God were here. Right? So we encounter a frustrating situation. I have to like wrangle this situation into how I want it to be. <sighs> then it's okay. Well, what if God's present and at work even though the situation sucks? Right? That's a new thing. That's a new thought. So that's the second thing. Third thing is that the primary context of our discipleship is our everyday lives. I think a lot of times we think of like the, the, the way that we do our discipleship is like, oh, I'm going to go to church. And actually, within a sacramental worldview, going to church matters a lot. So I'm not, I'm not denigrating it, okay? Like, going to church matters a lot. But not for the reasons that you thought. <laughs> right? Not to make the pastor happy. Not to learn some new facts about God. But to encounter him with his people. You know? Where else would you want to be on a Sunday morning? Anyway. So... Uh, but the primary context of our discipleship is our everyday lives. It's the everyday context of our lives. Dallas Willard said that most of us throw away event after event of our lives as not right, as not good, as not something that God would be at work in. Now we have to start to recapture those and say, this is, God is present in my everyday ordinary life. The normal stuff that I do, not just the churchy stuff. Yeah? And then the fourth one is that, then it follows from the third one. The fourth one is that the mundane, ordinary stuff is actually more important for us to pay attention to than the extraordinary stuff. I used to think that I would grow as a Christian if I had more extraordinary moments. So you go to a conference and you listen to some more worship music and you, right? You try to like hype yourself up into having an extraordinary moment with God. But actually, if God is always present at work, it's actually more important for us to start to pay attention to the mundane and the ordinary stuff of our lives. That's where we're going to be, because that's where we live most of our lives. That is our life, right? Most of our life is like making breakfast, going to work, talking to people at work, right? Or talking to our kids at home. Like that's our life. God's present at work there. Um, okay, so let me introduce our practice for the week, and then we'll have, see if there's any questions, okay? So our practice for the week is to learn how to detect what we're going to be calling kairos moments. Okay? Kairos is a Greek word that just means time, has to do with time. When Jesus introduced his ministry, we get it from, this is one of the places it's used. When Jesus introduces his ministry in the synoptic gospels, he says, the kairos has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. Right? So a kairos moment uh, is something we're going to learn how to practice um, detecting in our lives in order to try to detect where God might be present and at work. So, um, if it's about waking up rather than God showing up, a key discipleship task is going to be for us to learn how to stay awake throughout our lives. Most of us sleepwalk through our everyday normal lives. We just do what sort of we've learned to do. We just live by habit. But this practice is going to help us wake up to how God may be, may be at work in our everyday ordinary lives. So one way to think about Kairos moments, the way that we're talking about them, is that they're sort of like sonar pings from the deep places of your soul. So there's a deep place in your spirit that is aware that God is present at work, and it's sending you sonar pings from these deep places. And detecting Kairos moments is a way of starting to pay attention, quiet yourself enough to like listen to what's going on there, okay? Kairos moments are easy to find. Have any of you in the past week been upset? Oh. That's a Kairos moment. Just the fact that you're upset is a Kairos moment. 
Has anybody in the past week, uh, has anybody in the past week felt, uh, did you laugh at any point? That could be a Kairos moment, yeah? So it's, it's, you just look for these little sonar pings that come from the deep places of our soul. So here's a few examples. Um, uh, one Kairos could be, I get irritated when I have to tell my kids to do their chores more than once. Right? Now, that, you know, I might, th there's, there's different things that I can do with that Kairos. And we're going to map them here to the grace and truth matrix in just a second, okay? But a couple more examples, just to give you a feel for what a Kairos is, okay? Um, another Kairos is, I daydream all the time about writing a novel. These aren't real for me, necessarily, but they're just Kairoses, right? Man, if I could write a novel, I think about this all the time. That's a Kairos. Um, I never look forward to going to work. That's a Kairos. Going to work, yeah. Uh, I get excited every time we have neighbors unexpectedly show up at the house. That's a Kairos. I get anxious every time we have neighbors unexpectedly show up at the house. That's a Kairos too, right? That's a Kairos. Um, I don't see eye to eye with my spouse on our weekly menu planning, but I don't say anything about it. Instead, I just quietly resent her, right? That's a Kairos. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm copying these from uh, something we wrote a long time ago, so I, that seems very specific, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm not sure who wrote that one. Um, I noticed that it's easy for me to uh, sense and know the nearness of God when I go for a long walk in the woods. That's a Kairos. Okay? Does that make sense? All we're doing is just noticing these little things that are happening for us. These, these things that are, that are happening. Now, here's our problem. Most of us have all of these things happen, right? These feel fair, very familiar, right? You guys can probably all think of a Kairos. If you are upset or elated at any point this week, that's a Kairos. Most of us do something with our Kairoses already, okay? And I want to map these to the grace and truth matrix because this is what we do internally to ourselves about our Kairoses. Some of us try to fight our kairoses or fix them, right? So if I'm frustrated, my kairos is my, my kids uh, never listen to me the first time when I tell them to do their chores, I'm gonna fix that. So I don't have to be frustrated anymore, right? So I might raise my voice or look, we're gonna implement a chore chart or we're gonna, there's gonna be more consequences, right? Or, right, that's fighting or fixing that kairos rather than just noticing it, okay? That makes sense? Fighting or fixing? We recognize there's something wrong here, and I want to make it right. Or maybe the kairos is something about us that we think is wrong, and we have to, like, uh, I have to try harder to be holy. That make sense? That's fighting or fixing. That's calling ourselves out as it regards our kairoses. Now, it's also possible to hang out with our kairoses, which is, I think a good word here is, oh, man, this, this pen is not doing well. Throwing it away. That's a kairos. Here's, here's the kairos. I threw away a pen earlier right before class, and Andy saw me do it, and I gave him the three-point sign, and I, I felt pretty impressed with myself. And uh, I just, yeah, I was trying to throw the trash. Thanks, Charlie. But, but now I'm somewhat embarrassed that I didn't uh, nail that. So, yes, kairos. So uh, hanging out with our kairoses is following our kairoses, right? It's believing that there's something true about this uh, that I have to act on. We'll be again. So here's an example. Um, if I 
Okay, so it's a silly example. But if I, if I felt shame that I had missed uh, the throwing of the marker into the basket. Sorry, I couldn't think of what it was, how to call it. So if I, if I had felt that shame, following that kairos would be like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Now you look like an idiot in front of all your parishioners. Right? Sort of an internal, like, like kind of beating yourself up a little bit, right? That could also be maybe calling out. Fighting or fixing might be like, like making a joke about it, you know, so I don't feel so bad about it. Or, that, that kind of or, or yeah, I'm going to practice throwing markers. So next time, yeah, that's good, Andy. Yeah. That makes sense? So that wasn't really, a, it feels a little silly to talk about it that way. But does that make sense? We sort, of, we sort of just believe it. Whatever Kairos is happening, we just follow it. We're like, oh, that's, oh, I'm such an idiot. That's oftentimes how it goes. Okay? Yeah, Jeff. Is it like trying to fit whatever event is going on into your own worldview to justify yourself? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, so whatever's going on. So if I feel, so let's say uh, I'm upset about our weekly menu. In our, in our family. That's my kairos. Fighting or fixing would be like, I'm going to like roll up my sleeves and I'm going to tell Deb what I think about this, right? And I'm going to make this different. I'm going to make this situation different. Following that kairos would mean like, ah, that I probably shouldn't be thinking like that. I probably shouldn't, I probably shouldn't be upset about this, right? This is silly for me to be upset about this. Right? So it's more like stuffing that. Stuffing it, out. dismissing feeling, it. Feeling shame about it. Right, right. I'm having a Kairos, but I don't want to share that. That's probably not important. I probably shouldn't. You know? Mm-hmm. That's kind of, that's one thing we do. And then also, that's similar to checking out. Checking out of our Kairos is just fleeing from them. Right? And there's lots of ways for us to do that. We have all kinds of ways of just ignoring Kairoses. Right? Medicating ourselves, binge watching Netflix. Whatever, whatever it might be, right? What we want to learn how to do, guys, the practice, is to face our kairoses. This is how we practice call in with our kairoses. Face them and befriend them. Even if they feel sort of shameful to us, facing and befriending our kairoses is how we welcome them as the place where God is meeting us. God's meeting them here. And I have to... I have to Stop trying to fix this. Stop trying to judge it. Stop trying to evaluate it. Stop believing it. I have to just let it be what it is for a couple seconds or minutes or weeks, right? To, to discern how God is present at work, okay? So all that to say, this is, primar- this is the primary work of your DNA groups. So the thing to share in your DNA groups is not advice for somebody else on how to fix their, fix their power, right? Oh, I've, that happened to me once. Let me tell you some good advice. That's not what we're doing, right? Um, and we're not there to just kind of discuss the ideas that we have about this class. The goal would be for kairoses to come up in your life, maybe through the class. Maybe the sacramental stuff seems really weird to you and you're scared. That's great. That's a wonderful kairos. God's waiting to meet you there. And so you just share it. You say, yeah, when Ben said that uh, sacraments were like horcruxes, I kind of freaked out. Yeah, I learned that with Yeah, so I, I kind of freaked out. Yeah, that's my kairos. That made me scared. And the leaders of your DNA groups are trained to help you process that, to welcome that. Oh, that's fine. That's fine that you got scared by that. You know, that isn't something to be ashamed of. That's, that's, that's what's happening in you. 
And that's where God's meeting you. The concrete, everyday moments of your lives. The stuff that upsets you. The stuff that makes you happy. Does that make sense? And so what we're doing in those groups is helping one another face and befriend our kairos. And the leaders of your group, your DNA group, are trained to do this. So they, they receive it just as it is. We don't judge it. We don't evaluate it. We don't try to give you advice about it. We just receive it. And then we ask questions about it. We get curious about it. We get compassionate with one another. and say, huh, that's interesting. Where do you think that's coming from? Why do you think that is? Andy. That seems so slow, Ben. And like... It is. <laughs> Com- compared to like fixing like, things. But I, you know, because I think a lot of times we all agree. Like in my own house, like I have this thing called ransom. It's like when you're <laughs> Annika just. <laughs> now you have to explain it. Annika just rolled her eyes really hard. Well, no, it's like, okay, so Carmen and I, like, there's just stuff strewn all around our house. So, we, yeah. so I came up with this great idea called Ransom. And I collect all the stuff and lock it in a room in the basement, and you have to do things to get stuff. To oh, <laughs> nice. Nice. Like, Five hugs a day? Oh, how do you survive? (laughs) (laughs) She hates hugs. So, like, what you're talking about, like, it just seems so long, like, and my my impulse and instinct is just to come up with stuff to... Yeah, yeah, just to fix this situation. The house is messy. Let's, you know, let's make it happen. Now, that isn't to say that ransom's a bad idea, necessarily, and it isn't to say that you can't clean up your house. There you go, there you go. We got lots of ways, right? To justify this. But my whole point is just saying, like, even in our DNA groups, like my impulse and instinct, like whenever someone shares something, is just to say, well, let's just let's fix it. Fix it, solve it. Yeah. 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 Where and that would be the goal if the goal was get a clean house. Well then, yeah, any way you can do it, fine, right? And it isn't that you don't clean your house. Right, right. It isn't that you don't clean your house, but it's that in addition to maybe cleaning the house or doing something that needs to be done, you also process why a messy house bothers you so much. You just think about it. Like, that's interesting. Why does this bother me so much? What's happening here, right? It doesn't prevent you from cleaning the house, but it's just an additional place where God is meeting you. God's meeting you in your frustration about your messy house. There's something there. There's some, and what we're looking for here is a lie that we believe about reality, about God, about ourselves, so that we can proclaim good news to you about God, about reality, about you. And proclaiming the good news and responding to that, that's the goal of our discipleship. Not giving each other good advice for keeping our house clean, you know, to use that as an example. Carla. So I understand how, I guess, what we could see as usually negative emotions or experiences. Yes. Uh-huh. How how does one do that with like something positive instead of being like, thank you, Jesus, and keep moving on? Yeah, yeah, good. That's a really good question. So the que- for the recording, just in case you couldn't hear it, um, the question, or if you in the room couldn't hear it, uh, the question is like, I can see how that like a negative experience, like, oh, I hate the messy house, or I'm fighting with my spouse again about the same thing, how that could be a place where we're like, oh, let's pay attention to that. But what about a positive thing? Like, I, uh, I was telling Ella the other day, I love getting packages in the mail. 
like there's a little thrill that happens in me. Like when I see something on the doorstep, I come home from work or whatever, and I'm, I see something there, I'm like, because I typically have forgotten what I ordered. And so it feels like Christmas. You know, it's like, wow, that's really cool. So anyway, that's a, that's an, I've never processed that as a Kairos. Um, but it's, it's mainly a positive thing, right? It's like, oh, that's exciting. That's fun, right? Um, and oftentimes, I think the way to process that is we're, we're going to be more in touch maybe with good news than we are with bad news. But there's a reason that it came up for you, right? And it typically is because it contrasts with some bad news that you've been believing. And bad news, I mean a lie. I mean a lie that we believe about reality. Does that make sense? So maybe, the, you know, maybe, maybe you're more in touch with, oh, wow, God's really at work in my life in this area. And you're like, thank you, God, for that. But why is that, why is that a kairos for you? Well, probably because you've had your doubts about whether God was at work in your life in that area. Right? And so there, there could be a lie that that contrasts with. And then there could be a response. And sometimes it is just thank you. Right? Thank you, God. Sometimes it's just sharing with somebody. Can I share with you what God's doing in my life right now? It's been really great. We'll get more into these practices, but they all flow from the bedrock of noticing our kairoses, detecting our kairoses, and learning to do this, learning, learning to do it and not, and not do the next thing that we normally do, right? Whether that's judge it, evaluate it, fix it, follow it, flee from it. It's just noticing it and letting it be there. So there's a discipline here of not doing what I normally do. And it might be a kairos for you to discover what I normally do with my kairoses, right? You can have a meta kairos. You can have a kairos about your kairos. <laughs> <laughs> layer upon layer. So, uh, so that's what you'll be doing in your DNA groups. And let me, let me give you, if I can, goes, I'm, I'm not going to check in with you on this, but if I can, I'd love to give you a little um, assignment. One great way to practice this is to literally keep a notebook handy with you. Maybe something close, close by that you can bring with you to work, maybe, or maybe on your bed, bedside or that kind of a thing. And just practice writing down when you notice what you think might be a Kairos moment, right? So my boss called me into the office and my immediate thought was, I'm in trouble. That's a Kairos, right? That that was your immediate thought. Oh, that's interesting. Write that down. Boss called me into the office, thought I was in trouble. Just write it down, just as a practice of, 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 of gathering these things up. Does that make sense? Another practice you can do is a, a, pr a prayer of examen. You guys, how many of you guys know what a prayer of examen is? Examen is a, is a prayer where we, at the end of the day, typically, we, we review our day with God. It takes five minutes, ten minutes. You just review your day with God, and you just ask where were the, the traditional uh, phrasing is, moments of consolation and desolation. This is from St. Ignatius. Uh, and all that means is like moments where I felt joy, peace, a sense of God's presence, a sense that everything is fine, my life is good. Where were those moments? Write those down. And then desolation. Where did I sense God's absence? Where did I experience anxiety or fear or anger today? Resentment. Where did I notice unforgiveness? Does that make sense? And just write them down. Again, you don't have to fix anything. You don't have to try to figure out what it all means. The first step is just writing them down and letting them be there. These are my kairoses. And then come to your DNA group this week and share one. Just share one of them as a kairos. You'll, a lot of us will notice like 
the way that we preface our kairoses is, oh, this is terrible, but... And then we say, what happened? I already know it's bad, guys. It's a kairos, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a kairos that you have to preface it. So just, just say it, right? That's a, that's a good practice, to just say it. I noticed this, even though I think that's bad, right? I noticed this. Okay, questions? Andrea. I was just thinking this week that, especially as we're new to the practice, there's a lot of tension in being in that moment. Because I think so many of us do, we're so much in the mode of like, fix it, yes. or flee from it, or you know, all of those. So just like an invitation for us to be in tension together, especially for those who aren't used to like, yeah. I'm going to share something that seems really negative, and no one is like trying to fix it. But, yeah. So just like, let's be in tension together and you know, yeah. work through the process of being compassionate. Very good. That's a great invitation. Thank you, Andrea. My go-to is always like, well, here's some good advice. It's something you feel good. Yeah. But I think that being able to let someone come to that themselves and have this specific moment with God where they can feel that goodness in their bones. Yeah. Like whenever we try to do our goodness of giving them the good news, we kind of like steal part of that. And I think that it like sets easy on their soul and it's like, okay, I can hold on it for a while, but that like in your bones good news, like. That's transformational. Yes. So I think being able to like step back and like, no, trust God is present and at work. Yes. And that He's gonna speak that specific yes. in your bones good news for this person. Um, it just brings so much more than what we could. Yeah. Create. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good words. Any other uh, comments or questions before we go? Time to get ready for church. Is that what we've been doing? Getting ready for church? We have been. We have been. But now, but now it's time to literally do the, the concrete things like plugging in our guitars and putting bread on the altar. All right, guys.